Hey there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. Today we're talking all things content marketing with Doug Kessler, Creative Director at Velocity Partners. If you've been to many marketing events, you will no doubt have seen Doug's awesome talks. He's also a prolific writer on all things marketing, content, tech, strategy and creativity. Today, we explore how you can discover the unique tone of voice and personality for your brand, as well as the six principles of great content brands. Doug offers fantastic insights on why you should always be insanely honest, why you should be open to killing more content, and how swearing might just help your brand. And yes, there is swearing in this episode. So what are we waiting for? Let's head over to studio to meet Doug Kessler. Doug, thanks for being here. You're very welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd love to hear a bit about your journey to this point, because I think it's a really interesting one. You started out in New York in an advertising firm, am I right? That's right. Ogilvy and Mather, Madison Avenue in the 80s. I mean, it was like the tail end of the Mad Men era. (laughs) There were still people taking four-hour lunches and coming back or not coming back at all. And uh, so yeah, it was it was proper advertising background, and I'm really glad because it gave me a real grounding in concepts and the big idea and all that kind of thing. It was also it was a fun time to be there. What kind of switched you over to B2B? You know, did you get sick of anything in particular? Yeah, you know what? At the time, I was I felt we were manipulating consumers a little in a like I was on a fabric softener account, and it was like be a good mother, use this fabric softener, and I felt bad about it. I felt like. It's not, it just felt fake. And I got onto a B2B account, it was AT&T at the time, and just thought, now we're convincing people to do something on the merits of an argument, more like a lawyer. I mean, I've learned since that, you know, a, a mix of emotion and, 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 and rational argument is obviously the strongest thing. But I just, I just gravitated toward that, like make a case and sell this thing, you know? Right. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I suppose for people listening in who may be searching, you know, for the right tone of voice and personality for their brand, like, how do you go about discovering what that is and, and what do you think is important? That's really a great question because you you said discovering as opposed, and I think a lot of people think voice is something you can just lay on top. And right. I do think you have to discover the voice of a brand or a company by talking to the people in it. And what you invariably find are there are people full of energy and passion and mojo and confidence and loving what they're doing and and that that never somehow makes it to the customer like it gets scrubbed out like people think marketing doesn't talk like that and they they filter it (laughs) whereas the voice is there it just needs to be tapped and it's not the same for every brand but you know obviously there are some brands you could bring all this mojo to and the minute you contact them and start talking to them you'll you'll have a like a decompression experience of what happened to that voice, like where'd it go? So you really want it to be authentic. And I think discovery is absolutely right. And I think, you know, you're looking for the people having the most fun in the company. Often it's the engineers, sometimes the salespeople, and who just believe, 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 and love talking about this stuff. And that's what you want to tap, tap into. And you mentioned the word mojo there. I suppose, where does mojo come into this? Mojo has become a big deal for us. Like we we talk about our agency velocity as kind of meaning metrics and mojo. And I think mojo is what what really have we've built the business on. And it's it's a funny word. And I did a talk on it once a while back that's got some great kind of connotations. But the ones we like about it are it's it's kind of confidence, attitude, and energy. And we know brands with mojo, you know, Nike has it and 
Apple has it, and there's all sorts of brands that just have this mojo, and it's what B2B often lacks most, and we want to find that. And I think confidence is the nearest analog for it, the nearest best word, really. We want to bring confidence to our clients and show that they're confident about what they do, they're good at it, they like it, they're having fun doing it. That's kind of magnetic. It's not arrogance, but it's a strong sense of presence in the room. And I suppose it's it's something not to be scared of either. Yeah, and I think people really do get scared of it. And often you'll see it happen in the revision cycles, like the first draft might have a lot of mojo. And as people start going at it, any word they kind of noticed and made them feel anything at all, they want <laughs> to tone down. You know, it's, there's just yeah. a natural impulse to do that. Or it's a case of, hey, that summary, that punchy little summary isn't particularly completely accurate. Let's make sure we add this, this, and that. So a single word becomes three and you get these listy type lines and that kills voice. So there's either an accuracy or just a fear of feeling something that makes <laughs> people um, want to scrub it out. Yeah, it's so unfortunate. And, and like you said there, you know, it's about finding those people within, you know, that make up the brand, you know, and, and the people who are having fun. And I suppose, you know, their kind of loves and hates and the, and the things that drive them. Yeah, absolutely. And part of it is, look, you guys should agree on voice up front. And I know everyone has a tone of voice statement. It's generally the same statement for everybody. But really talk to people about voice as a differentiator, as an opportunity for this brand to stand out. And often, sometimes in markets where a lot of products are very similar, it's one of your only opportunities to stand out. And so, you know, for me, it's a, it's a force multiplier, which means a budget multiplier if you get it right. And if you could agree ahead of time that we're going to aim for that, show some other brands that do it, say, this is what we need for this, so that when the reviewers take their pencils out, their red pens, they know what you're aiming for, which is something different, not something the same as everybody else. And I suppose like a good place to start could be to kind of like look back at why the company was founded in the first place. That's often a big source of it. You know, some companies have kind of don't have a direct line to that. Many still do definitely mm. early stage and disruptors. Like we'll ask in our input process, you know, why did you start this company? Like, and that you often will get these great, great stories of, I was really angry at something. I wanted something to stop. I wanted to fix this or fill that gap. And, so yeah, origin stories is a, a one big source. It's not the only, but it's a really good one. I love your six principles of great content brands. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind like taking us through that a bit. Sure. So I mean, I mean, the first idea is that there is such a thing as a great content brand, which is an addition to a great brand, a product brand, you know, and that if people think of it that way, they start thinking, all right, we're bring, building a content brand. And that means something that people feel like if it comes from these guys, it's worth reading. It's going to be worth my time, either for entertainment or value or both. So that's the goal. All right. And, and, you know, to, you have to earn that. You don't just get to, you know, keep putting stuff out. And, you know, one of the principles is be the buyer. So obviously the empathy is a big deal. And, you know, it sounds so obvious and it's repeated so often, but it's still incredibly rare that people actually start with, what does this audience, this specific audience, our ideal customers, what do they care most about? And if you literally start there, do not start with what product do I have to talk about? What, you know, what is my goal and agenda here? You have to build a bridge between those two, but you better start with what do they care about? So that's a right. 
Um, you know, being authoritative is another, which is all about the sweet spot. Like a lot of people think, well, now I've discovered what they care about. I'm going to write about that. It's not yeah. that simple because you may not have any authority in that area. You've got to look at the overlap <laughs> with they care about it, but you also have a right to talk about it. You've got something to bring to the table. Um, so that's a big one. I mean, one of the principles is about, you know, being strategic, which I guess it means just don't do one-offs. And that's about content marketing as a tactic, as opposed to specifically the brand. Right. And then the other ones are be prolific, be passionate and be tough on yourself. Yeah. I mean, prolific, I still do believe in, although I think if you do so much that your, your quality bar lowers, that's not good. But Passion, it's the mojo thing we talked about. And, you know, the big one is honest with yourself. And this is another one that is is rarely practiced because um, you need to be able to pause and say, is this really as good as it can be? Is it the right thing to do? A lot of people don't really want to pivot midway in a content piece. I mean, you, you're a documentary maker, so you know that you may find a story halfway and you want to follow that. You don't want to stick with the exact roadmap. Yeah. And the same should be true of, you know, marketers and content. And uh, it's, you know, find the best story. And even if it's like 90% of the way through what you thought you were making, you find the real thread, go there, you know. And so I'd like to see people be honest with themselves and kill more pieces or at least pivot them. And, you know, just be honest. Is this going to help build this content brand or is it just another thing? Like I remember reading an interview with the host of This American Life, Ira Glass, where he was asked how their show, you know, has such a high hit rate for great stories. And he said it's because they kill a lot of them. You know, like they'll send reporters out to start work on a story. And if they realize it's not really great or going anywhere or interesting enough, they just can it. So I suppose, like you mentioned there, you know, about that we should be killing more stuff like is that approach possibly in content marketing? Should we be killing more content? It's harder. I think you kind of have to build a culture around that, that we're going to have a lot more starts than we are completes, and that we're going to call it early when we notice that it's not there. Or if there's still a twinkle to find, you know, keep some resource going that way, fine. But, you know, it's a different kind of culture. And I think the documentary mindset, which I've, I've written about in the blog, is a big thing here. It's like, let's go find stories some of them won't be. And that idea of killing, I think, is fucking precious. Sorry about this word. It's That's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, I took a course with David McCandless, who does Information is Beautiful, all about data journalism. And he's great. And he has such a high hit rate. And somebody asked him during the, the workshop, same question. He had the same answer. We kill a lot. And it made a huge impression on me, too, just as it obviously did on you, this idea of, ah, it's not that everything they touch is gold. It's they know mm. to put down the stuff that isn't gold. And that's marketers don't know how. We've committed. We've got a budget. We've got a timetable. We've got stakeholders. But if we could change the culture a bit to make it more one of experimentation and knowing that some of these starts are not going to finish, that leads to this kind of thing. And we get to kill more without shame, you know? And right now, the way yeah. it's built, it's conveyor belt-like. It's kind of, um, if you start it, you're going to finish it, deliver on time, on budget. That's professionalism. Well, in this kind of marketing, it may be professional, but it may not lead to the best outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I come from a radio background and we used to call it shooting puppies yeah, when definitely. you had to like, you know, tell a guest that unfortunately we weren't going. Yeah and, it, yeah. and you feel kind of, you know, you feel bad about it. That's why we had them down as puppies. But like yeah. you have to do it. Yeah, it's true. And it can be hard when you when you involve stakeholders like, hey, Mr. CEO, we didn't think it was good enough uh, what you did there. <laughs> you know, so you got to be careful and, and plan accordingly. But 
I do think we, if we felt free enough to kill more, we could be honest with ourselves. When we know that we can't or feel we can't kill this piece, it's harder to be honest with yourself because if it's turning into a dog and you don't know how to save it, you're less likely to speak up. It's like, look, let's get through this one. Let's publish and let's get to the next one. And I understand that that's a real world thing. But again, we're talking about building great content brands. If you consistently put out things that that were in that mode that kind of should have been changed or killed, well, you're hurting your content brand. Just something that occurred to me there while you were in that answer. Where do you stand on swearing in content marketing? Yeah. Our listeners will know where we stand because that wasn't bleeped out. So right. what do you think What do you think about it in general? It's funny because I've done a talk on it and I've done a post on it. I've actually studied a lot. I've read a ton of research about swearing. Oh, wow. Because swearing touches a different part of the brain. It really does something else to the listener that no other language does. And there's a lot of research on it. And so the talk that I give about swearing in marketing, we, we do swear at Velocity. We're a very sweary culture and we're honest about it. And we just are. And I'm sorry that it does alienate some very nice people um, <laughs> who we'd work well with. So it's not a great filter in that sense. But, but we were wondering, why do we swear? But we never, almost never swear for a brand, our clients. And in researching it, some answers started coming up about what swearing does for you. And what I like is, you know, it can use well, it can surprise, it can, it can lower people's defenses, it can come off as way more honest and authentic, it can signal passion, it can be funny. So there's a lot of things a good use of swearing can do. And obviously the lazy use doesn't do those things. But the most important thing for people is not, well, then swear. It's do those things swearing lets you do. Be surprising. Have a bunch of passion. Signal you care, signal honesty and authenticity. You know, those are the things that matter. And swearing is one of the roots to it. I don't think it's obviously not right for every brand, although I have a swipe file that has a lot of swearing in almost every market, including financial services, the driest markets in the world. <laughs> and so I don't think it's a definite no. I think it's something mm. that can be explored. I suppose off the back of that, and you've mentioned it a lot throughout our whole chat, is kind of honesty. And and you talk about kind of insane honesty in content marketing. And it's something I'm a big fan of. And mm. often brands, I suppose, can be really resistant to just being honest about things. So why, and, and I can't believe I'm asking this, but why is honesty a good thing? Well, you know, honesty, of course, is professional, ethical, and we hope we all are over that bar. But insane honesty is kind of an extra thing, which is like a tactic that says, take one of your weakest points and put it right out in front and lead with it. Like Volkswagen Beetle did with the ugly ads. They just, they just admitted they were ugly. They reveled in <laughs> ugliness and they made it fun and funny. And they realized that they weren't going to alienate people who were really going to buy the car because people who really cared about that it didn't look like the cars of the time, which had big fins. If they wanted that, they weren't going to buy Beetles anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, it's one of those breaking of conventions thing, and swearing is another one of those. But this is even more powerful, I think, where where people expect you to only say good things about yourself. And when you don't, when you go out and say, you know what, our, our um, dashboard isn't as good as some of the other guys, but here's why and here's what we value and what we're doing about it. It's just disarming. It, you know, people mm. lower their marketing defense barriers because it, wait, someone's saying something true and, you know, they're actually admitting to a fairly big thing. So, you know, it's beyond that professional ethical honesty. It's this tactic 
called Insane Honesty, which we've written a lot about and is incredibly powerful and, in, again, incredibly rarely done, which is why it still has its power. I mean, I, I love the example you give when, when you write and talk about it in terms of booking a restaurant for a work do, I think it was, and, and, and how that kind of played out. Yeah, it was, you know, we had this big Christmas thing. We go to a different city every Christmas with everybody and their partners. And back then, that was, I think, 50 people. I think we're up to 100 this year. And I was looking around for the restaurant. And most had very cursory answers to my needs. And one restaurant kept saying, look, I know you said you wanted a private room. Ours isn't private. Here's what it looks like. Here's a picture. Here's some screens, what we can do. I know you wanted a place for drinks beforehand. We can't really do that, but we can do this. I know you wanted vegetarian options. We do have them, but you should know it's a fish restaurant, blah, blah, blah. She kept telling me why not to choose them. And that's insane honesty. And what it signaled was she cared more about me and us having a good time than about her winning the, the business. Right. And wow, what a signal. Now imagine doing that for your content. If the reader says, holy cow, they, they care more about our success than their own win here. And wow, that is just such a powerful signal. So it was that experience that made me think we picked them. We had a great evening at that restaurant. <laughs> and yeah, they did care. They were incredible. Their service was amazing. So that made me think this is something everybody should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One of your most inspiring pieces and one that probably a lot of people listening will remember is called Crap and how it's the single biggest threat to B2B content marketing. I'm wondering, like, since you kind of put that out there, where do we stand right now with this? Like, is the sludge out there just getting thicker and thicker. Yeah, I think unfortunately it's come true and I don't think it was that hard to predict. It was, you know, it was going to happen. It's like, here comes marketing. And so, yes, the bar's gone way up. Like at the very beginning, and even when crap was written, just doing content marketing conferred an advantage to your brand. It's like, wow, you're packaging up your expertise and helping someone out to do their job for nothing. You're like, that was fresh. Like they have an ebook, come get it. 
you know, imagine that. <laughs> and obviously when everyone's doing it, you don't get that instant advantage, but it just means you better work harder for that advantage and you still can. But because, you know, there are so many mediocre, I think crap was too stating it, almost overstating it. It's more about mediocrity. It's like most of it's good. It's not utter crap. Um, most of it's just good. It's like a bell curve, you know, and if you're in the middle, that's like the mountain of meh, I like to call it. It's like it's just <laughs> more content. Whereas if you can get up to that tail, that right side of the bell curve and stand out and have that kind of content brand, now you got your advantage back, you know? So unfortunately crap stayed true and, and it's still a perennial. I mean, it still gets a lot, a lot of reads every year even though for me, it feels like kind of old news now. <laughs> and so I, I suppose that, you know, leads us on to how, you know, obviously it's a huge Lord of the Rings-esque battle for, you know, people's waning attention spans. Mm -hmm. And what do content marketers need to do to win that battle for attention? Yeah, and I think there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how there was a tipping point somewhere where the amount of content exceeded an audience's ability to consume it. It's like, you know what, that probably happened in the middle ages. That was, there was never a time when anyone could read everything about everything, you know? So all it means, I, yes, attention's a hard thing to get, but if you're granular, focused, empathetic, if you're right in there with what your audience, your ideal prospects care most about, and it's timely because the world keeps changing. So there's no sense that it all, you know, you'll ever be done. Then I think that it's not, it's not the big devil. Like to not do content marketing because of that problem, the saturation is a big miss because like who wants a brand that's content free? You know, sure. I mean, that's, that's not an option. So the question is, all right, get granular, get timely, get specific. And those three things will, will, you know, be enough to combat. Then if, if you keep the, the mojo in there and then the quality up, you'll find your audience. I suppose when you have that, when you have the mojo and the quality and you're all gung-ho, and we kind of mentioned this earlier, but what do you do when like your senior executives are kind of getting in the way of what you're doing? Well, for a long time, that was the number one obstacle. And we would ask clients, but also did a few polls. And the obstacle to doing this great content marketing and building a brand were senior people who grew up in a different world, you know, when you just battered people with your ad messages until they succumbed, you know, they're aging out of the market. And, you know, we have some smart CMOs in B2B tech, you know, there are a lot of really great CMOs now. There are other stakeholders who need some educating and bringing along, but part of what makes great marketers great is they know how to bring stakeholders along, you know. They don't just expect them to understand marketing as well as we all do or brand. And so part of it is change management and education. And if you really find yourself in a place where, look, the CEO's idea of good marketing is just not my good idea of marketing, well, get out of there and get yourself to another company because life's too short. But you know, usually it's your job to make that case and get your stakeholders on board and excited about what you want to do. Just before we wrap up, I loved your piece on the search for meaning in B2B marketing, because I think it's something that all of us, all content marketers think about at some point in their careers. And I'm kind of wondering, where did you find meaning in it? Yeah, that's the most important piece to me and the most personal piece. I almost didn't publish it because it was so personal. And it was really this question of, look, it's not glamorous work and it's not saving the world. Like some of my friends do some very important work. So why do I love it so much? Because I also knew that I loved it and I still do. 
And so I started asked, trying to answer that question in that piece and came up with seven sources of meaning. And some are, you know, you'd think kind of mundane. I love helping businesses grow, businesses that I believe in. Yeah. I like helping people, like the clients who chose us. I feel like we owe them a win and I want to help their career. Like, so these are sources, there are seven of them in the piece. And when you add them up, they were more than good enough answer to me about this is a great place to spend a career. I, I can enjoy this without feeling ashamed or guilty or embarrassed. You know, my meaning is, is here. Like I, I enjoy this and here's why. Like there's, it is important. You know, it isn't, it isn't not important. So um, <laughs> I still feel it's, that's, that piece still works for me when I'm flagging with my, my own energy. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll link to it in the blog post uh, for this podcast episode because I think everyone should read it. Um, and then finally, just what's next? How, have you any big plans or projects for 2022? I'm sure you have loads of them. Yeah, there's a lot going on. I mean, we've got to a size of Velocity. We're about 70 people, two offices, and something happens. Like there's a tipping point where you're innovating on a whole bunch of fronts at once. Plus, you have to weave them together. So we have a really fast-growing kind of performance team doing new things in SEO for B2B, that kind of stuff. And they each have their exciting roadmap. And then there's this, all right, but how does it work all together around this, what we call a galvanizing story, this like central idea for the brand? And so the, the innovation, which is like five different directions, plus the integration of that into a, a whole thing is the big next thing for us. It's not one, like content marketing was kind of one thing for years that was needed to evangelize and was the revolution. This is more like knitting together a whole cluster of very fast innovation. And lastly, where can our listeners go to keep up with you and your work? Well, we have a blog, uh, velocitypartners.com, and we have a newsletter that, you know, we promise not to spam people. It's a, it's fun. <laughs> it's a little bit quirky. It's not... Uh, just shoving content in people's faces. So the newsletter seems to get some good um, good engagement. So that's a nice place to start too. Thanks for asking. Yeah, absolutely. I love the Velocity blog. It's some really great pieces in there. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Liam. I really enjoyed it. And congrats on your, uh, your own podcast. I think it's one of the longest running and one of the best going. So bravo. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Doug Kessler. I know I sure did. If there's someone you'd love to hear interviewed on the show, why not suggest them? Get in touch by emailing podcast at intercom.io. Okay, that's it for today. See you next week on Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.